0: Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. (laughs) So, what a wonderful study it's been for us thus far. And um, so we'll pick up again here in Romans 12 this morning, and we will begin at the beginning to consider once again what Paul has where Paul has brought us in our study of Romans and how that then sets the foundation for where we will go through the remainder of the letter. It has uh, been said that the famous American writer and humorist Mark Twain, of which many of you may be familiar, that he used to say that he'd put a dog and a cat in a cage together as an experiment to see if they could get along. Well, they did. So he put in a bird, a pig, and a goat, and they too got along after a few minor adjustments. Then he put in a Baptist, and a Presbyterian, and a Methodist, and soon it was said that there was not a living thing left. (laughs) Well, Mark Twain, of course, found the humor in that statement, and obviously so do we this morning. But the problem is, true as this may be, it's really not all that funny, is it? Such a statement runs entirely counter to everything that Jesus intended for his church. And if this was true in the time of Mark Twain, I don't have a whole lot of confidence that it's better today. As we begin this morning to venture into the second half of Romans 12, and subsequently then the remaining portion of Paul's letter, what we will see is that Paul, having first taught on the doctrines of the faith, and, and secondly, then brought us through that to a place of, of praise and worship and surrender, will now bring us to a place of, of the outcome of these things. That is to say, and truly, whenever you're reading a, a letter of Paul, what you'll find is that he goes to great lengths on the front end to make clear what it is that God has done for us. You could say that he focuses on doctrine, on orthodoxy. He wants to make sure it's clearly understood. Here are the foundations of the faith. And it's the truth then of the word of God. It's those doctrines of the faith that should cause us to come then to a place of praise where we would say, God, because of everything that you've done for me, I am moved to praise and not just praise, but praise should move us to worship, true worship, right worship, which means surrender. So then as we surrender, what Paul says is then here's what your life should start to look like. If you are surrendered, if you've given your life to Christ, if you are in the continual process of surrendering, saying, Lord, each and every day my life is yours, then your life should begin to look different. It should change. And so here in the last part of Romans, we begin to see what our lives should look like, what our behavior should be like. And the practical application of our faith, which is found in these chapters, really boils down in many respects to unity. Unity of His church. Unity and love and kindness and service amongst the members of His body. That is what we are called to. Jesus prayed as much as we considered last week In uh, John 17, we read specifically there, this is part of Jesus' prayer, that they all may be one. Jesus, praying to the Father, says, Father, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. I continue to be overwhelmed by the words of Jesus' prayer that, that not only could we experience oneness the way that Jesus and the Father are one, but that such oneness, such unity would serve to communicate to a lost world that Jesus is the Son of God. This is what Jesus desires for His church. He says that the world will know when they see this kind of unity. And, and really prior to this point, if you go back even further in John, in John chapter 13, John 13 marks the beginning of the end, if you will, in terms of Jesus' earthly ministry. It's, it, it's the, the Passover meal. They're beginning to come together. Jesus is going to share His last instruction. He's going to speak with His disciples in many respects for the last time. And, and, it, and it's there with this Passover meal that Jesus demonstrated what this unity would look like. He would begin by washing the feet of His disciples. Jesus, the Son of God, humbling Himself to wash the feet of His students. And from there, He would call His disciples, as He calls us, to abide in Him and in His love, saying, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Church, this is what we're called to. We are called to love each other. And what we'll see here in Romans, a little bit of a spoiler alert, is it's not that we're just called to love each other, but all people. Just some people, right? No, all people. This is what He desires for His church. And He wants for us, unity. Now in the world, out in the world, outside of the church, those in the world, they desire this. Our world wants unity. It wants peace. In fact, in many respects, our world has stolen aspects of peace and unity and love that are rightly understood within the context of the gospel in the church. But we shouldn't fault them for that, but rather seek to demonstrate for them what that really is. That when people who are lost say, oh, I know what love is, then we can say, oh, no. Not in a condemning way. Let me show you. Let me reveal to you what true love really is. And so they want this. But the problem is, absent the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, absent the, 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 the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon a believer, this can't be accomplished. And so the world, as we know, is regularly seeking to bring about peace and unity and love and doing so in and through the flesh. And and it's a very selfish form of love and peace and unity because they've not yet been, or should I state differently, have recognized and received the rescue that takes them from that place of self. And so we see in the world these efforts to accomplish these things, but it's very selfish. And so the world then, the world we see, seems to be intent on tearing itself apart, seeking to bring a peace that's tainted by sin a piece rooted in that very original sin of self. And we know that it's not working. It's not working. Recently, the FBI released a, a report on violence in the United States. Uh, specifically, the FBI it takes this report and it deals with murders in the United States. Now, this particular report for the year 2020, this last year, saw an increase. Now, statistically speaking, this increase doesn't speak in terms of total numbers, so it's not the highest number ever in the U.S., but it is an increase over the previous year, a 30% increase in 2020 in the number of murders throughout the United States. The significant component of this statistic, if that doesn't just seem evident enough, is that this is the largest single-year increase ever recorded in the history of the United States. Now, should such a comment, should such a statistic create fear? No. What I would want us this morning to understand as the church is to see clearly the world's way of working, the world's attempts at love and unity and peace are failing. And secondly, while of course the FBI report did not make this correlation, I think it's rather interesting that we saw the single greatest increase in violence in the United States in the same year in which his church failed to meet regularly. I want you to think about that for a moment. In the very year where supposedly everybody was isolated, quarantined, shut down, not talking to anybody, somehow we managed to inflict violence upon one another in statistically significant ways. And so am I saying, am I suggesting then that the church's failure to meet has a direct correlation on the increase of violence in this country? Yes, I and not just the church's failure to meet, but then the division that comes as a result of those things and the division we continue to then see in His church today is having a negative impact on our world. You want to know how I know this? How I can, be, how I can say that with absolute confidence? It's not just in what we've seen historically, but it's what we know prophetically. That when the church is removed from this world, all hell is going to break loose. This is the work of the Holy Spirit is the restrainer in this world today. And so yes, the Holy Spirit can function and work independent of us. Praise God for that. But the Holy Spirit is also in every one of us, Christian. When Jesus said that it was good that he would go so that the Holy Spirit would come, why? Because he said the Holy Spirit can be in every believer. And my church, I'll build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I will have believers throughout the world seeking to bring the peace that, that is rooted in the Word of God. But if we're not doing that, then what of this world who longs for the very thing that we can give them? We know this. I trust that you would agree with this. The answer to the world's problems is not out there. It's in here It's right in front of me. It's sitting in these chairs. It's Spirit-filled believers who know the truth and have the boldness that comes with the Holy Spirit to share that truth. Friends, the church, the gospel, Jesus is the solution. But we must function as Jesus intended His church to function. And we have let too much of the world in and, and taken too little of the church out. And we need to pursue then the unity that he desires of his church so that the world will know. So how is this accomplished? How do we do this? You guys are smart folks. I'm going to trust that you know the answer our third Sunday into Romans 12. Do we know where we're going? I beseech you, therefore, brethren by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Friends, what we must recognize is that it begins with surrender. It begins with surrender. Jesus is the absolute perfect gentleman. He will not force himself. He will operate in a necessary way to bring all things together for good he will allow things in your life he will gently work in your life he will allow uh, he will work his his grace into every different aspect of your life but it comes down to us there is a responsibility yes we take that view here at calvary we have a responsibility to respond to say yes lord so whether it's for first time, salvation, you giving your life to Christ, trusting him for the forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life, or then for every believer who on an ongoing basis wakes up, and for me it's it's a necessary thing, at least daily, if not twice a day, three times a day, however many times it takes, to say, Lord, I know that right now. I am sort of kicking you off of the throne of my heart and placing myself back there. And I am wrong and I'm sorry, I repent. Lord, you take your rightful place. And so it's an ongoing process of surrender, of giving Jesus the place of priority in your life. In 2 Corinthians, we considered this last week as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, we read, "...and he," that's Jesus, "...died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves." but for him who died for them and rose again. Paul David Tripp writes this of 2 Corinthians 5.15. He says, embedded in this phrase is a diagnostic that applies to every person who has ever lived. Paul is arguing here that the coming of and sacrifice of Jesus were necessary because the DNA of sin is selfishness. Sin causes me to ignore God's existence and his rightful claim on every area of my life. Because God is not in His rightful place in my living that is in the center of it all, I then insert myself in that place. My life becomes all about me. This is the root of sin. And so it requires us to daily say, Lord, my life is not my own. In view of Your mercies towards me, God, I realize that there is nothing in my life that rightfully belongs to me. It's all Yours. You bought it. You came and lived the life that I could not live. You you died the death that I would not die. You did it, Lord, and so my life is yours. And so this surrender must happen first. And then, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We've considered this verse multiple times already. I'll share with you today J.B. Phillips, his translation which he renders the following way. He says, Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, that it meets all of his demands and moves towards the goal of true maturity. We don't let this world fit us into its mold. That's the call. That's the exhortation. But sadly, often we do. And far too often, and in far too many cases, we've even squeezed His church into that mold as well. But we're called to be different. We're called to be set apart. Pilgrims just passing through. Strangers on this earth. We're called to allow this renewing work to take place. And then, such work is to lead somewhere. It doesn't just end there. Philip says that it's to maturity, which looks a lot like verse 3. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. This is an element of Christian maturity. That we would think soberly. We would think rightly about who we are. That we would look to Christ as our measure, our standard, and allow such a view, I'll call it a Jesus lens, It's a Jesus lens that that allows us to to see rightly who he is, which then brings our perspective of ourselves into focus. But it's important that we be careful here. The word says soberly or translated rightly. And what we must recognize about ourselves is that our tendency is extremes. Meaning that sometimes we're, we're either up here, thinking of ourselves maybe more highly than we ought to, But then if we compare ourselves to Christ, we go, oh, well, whoa! I'm way down here, and I'm just worth nothing, right? We we struggle with that. I'm either really good or I'm really terrible. Does the word say that? No, it says think rightly. It says view yourself through the perspective of Christ. And so, again, we've got to be careful here that we don't... uh, move to a place of self-deprecation and not rightly see how Jesus sees us. If you've surrendered your life to Christ, then what does God see? Scripture tells us that he sees his workmanship. Translated differently, it says that he sees his work of art. He sees his workmanship created for a purpose according to Ephesians 2:10. When he looks at you what he sees is a new creation where the old is gone and the new has come, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17. And the psalmist in Psalm 82.6 says that he sees his child whom he loves. You see, we need to be careful that we don't take ourselves, individuals created in the image of God, and seek to defame or mar that image out of self-deprecation or glorify that image, but rather to see ourselves as he sees us, which is individuals created in the image of God, created with purpose, on purpose. And the enemy would love for each and every one of you to be stuck in your past. The enemy would love for you to uh, wallow in your sins of the past. Your enemy, the enemy would love to convince you that you're worth nothing and that you're beyond his grace and beyond his mercy, but none of those things are true. None of those things are consistent with, God, with who God says you are. And so we need to see ourselves rightly as He sees us. And and when we begin to see ourselves rightly, then we can begin to see the body of Christ rightly. As Paul says in verse 4 and 5, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Paul says we're family. We are family, and, and, and that means we are connected. We are one. This isn't aspirational. This isn't, oh, what a, what a cool thought. No, it's what's been accomplished. So Paul then is building. He's connecting us to that which Jesus desires for his church, viewing then, let's, let's cover this again, viewing rightly the mercies of God, We give our lives to Him. That's the reasonable conclusion. And as we give our lives to Him, then we begin to bring our lives under His control and for His use and for His purposes. And we begin to see then that as it relates to all people created in the image of God, that the the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That there's equality there. Though there's diversity amongst us. And then we can begin to look at others with the same clarity as we view ourselves as children of God, deserving of love and kindness. And this is all people. And then we begin to experience unity because we have humble minds renewed by His Word. And then we can begin to see that that He's created us, each of us with purpose so that together we can be used for His glory, unified as a church to build one another up to reach a lost world. Verse 6, having then gifts, differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. So now Paul starts to to take this thing forward to say "You're, you're now in a right place. You're surrendered. You're not viewing yourself rightly. You know better now who you are and who God has created you to be. And so then, take these things and these gifts that He has given you recognizing that you are created with purpose, on purpose, and use the gifts. And these are gifts of grace. It means, no, we don't deserve it. No, we we don't don't deserve these gifts. We don't deserve the things that He has given to us and and, and the way that He wants to use us. But rather than saying, oh, well, woe is me. I I don't deserve this. No, we can say, God, you love me so much, that you've worked in my life. And, and, and you've shown me mercy, and you've helped me to see things the way that you see things, and so now, Lord, I see that you've equipped me, and you want to use me, and so what better way than to glorify you and to serve you than to put that into use? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. This is a work that he's already done. He's already given you what you need. Furthermore, it says this says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. He chose you. Maybe some of you need to hear today that he has chosen you. That a holy and righteous creator, God, who is above all things, who knows all things, who's seen all things, has covered all things, and he's chosen you. He says, You're mine. You're my workmanship. And I want to use your life. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so the the implication here then being as you participate in and do good things that you know are in accordance with his will, there's a peace about it. He's led you in it. You can say, God, you knew this. You prepared me for this. I know this morning I can I can rest assured, operating in peace in my calling, as I'm sharing these words with you, I can say, God, you're doing this. You, you have ordained this, Lord. And every one of us can operate in that same way. And so then where Paul goes here is to give some insight into these gifts. Now, where he goes from here, there's a list of gifts that he provides, these are not all the gifts. Where, where Paul goes here is really to just give us a sampling, if you will, to make a point. So as, and, and when it comes to spiritual gifts, we can see in Romans 12, we can see in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, we can see in Ephesians chapter 4, varying gifts, spiritual gifts. I'm of the opinion that even in all three of those chapters put together, we don't have an exhaustive list. I don't think the Bible gives us every single list. I think that's our tendency to want that to be the case, Lord, give me a list. Give me a list, and then if you could also give me a little bit of a, a quiz, and then I'll answer the quiz, and then I'll know for sure this is who I am, and this is my gifting, and then I'll just stay in my lane, right? It, it doesn't work that way. Now, I'm not saying that all spiritual gift inventories are bad, I think they're a nice tool to get you moving, maybe in the right direction, but God, He uses us in so many different ways. Furthermore, I think there's times when God gifts us with something uh, only for a moment, a necessary interaction, something that you know, this is not my character. I'm not usually this way. You, You might say, I'm the most unmerciful person. I'm just like, get up and put some dirt on it and let's go. And suddenly in a moment you see somebody and you just find yourself broken over them and tending to their needs and caring for them. Maybe it's somebody you never even would. You know, it's, it's an enemy. And, and, and then moving forward, you just continue to kind of operate in the giftings that you, you know have been true to you your whole life. And it was just that moment that God said, you're the one, I want to use you in this person's life. I think that can happen in a number of different ways. And so here, then, as we go through this, this is not my intention this morning. We're going to go quickly here. We're not doing a study on the gifts here this morning. We'll do that as we get into First Corinthians this morning. I want us to see something different. So let's move quickly here. Paul says, he says, uh, "Let us use them." Continuing on in verse six, if prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Now, listen. If you have the gift of prophecy, you're not a new prophet. If you come in declaring to be a prophet, we're going to meet you afterwards and we're going to talk about that, okay? You're not a new prophet. There is no new prophecy. But if you have the gift of prophecy, you might have the gift of forth something of, of in your own time in the word and in time in prayer, the, the Lord may give you something to share with someone and say, look, this is on my heart. I want to encourage you with this okay or ministry let us use it in our ministry and this is in many respects about leadership and maybe even uh, administration or caring for the body or he who teaches and teaching those that are gifted and called to teach teach right he who exhorts an exhortation maybe you're gifted in an exhortation and, and and so do it challenge others encourage others build a, do a Vince Lombardi let's go right get people ready for whatever it is that they're facing he who gives with liberality means, look, if, if God has blessed you, you're just a generous person, you love to give, chances are then he's blessing you in ways so that you can give. So keep giving, keep doing it. Keep being faithful in that. He who leads with diligence. Maybe the enemy comes in, you're a gifted leader, you know that you have the ability to, 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 to bring people together to accomplish something and maybe the enemy starts to say, no, you, you're not good at that, or, you, need to just, you need to just close your mouth. Maybe, no, just lead. Get in there, lead, make things happen. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness, this is a good one there, because those of you who show mercy, man, you can get burnt out. It's tough to be a mercy person. So Paul says with cheerfulness, do it knowing that you're doing it for the Lord. Again, this is not an exhaustive list, and, and, and I agree, I may have gone through them here faster than you'd like. Maybe you wanting to have a greater understanding, we'll get there, we're going into Corinthians next, okay? Because what I want us to see here today is that this is less about the specific gift and more the importance of exercising them? You could put any other ones in there, and what Paul's saying is look, if, if this is you, do it. Give it your best. Do everything is unto the Lord and not to man. Take your gifting and say, Lord, this is from you. What better way to glorify you than to put it to use? Paul's, Paul's really saying here a couple of different things. One, we can certainly see here that he's saying there's diversity in his church. There's diversity of gifts. There are different types of gifts. And praise God for that, that we're not all the one. Wa- what if we were just all up here going, man, it's my turn to play the guitar. No, it's my turn. and It's my turn. Or what if it was all exhortation? What if, what if, what if all I could do was exhort, and I was the one standing here, and man, I could get you guys fired up and you're just ready to just run out those doors. You don't even go through the lobby. You just bust open all three of these doors and run out into the world to tell people the truth of the gospel, and you are so excited, and you get there, and you go, ah, I don't even know what I'm supposed to say right now. I'm excited, but what am I excited about? Well, we need teachers so that those who, are, who can get you excited, there's others who can say, and here's what you need to be excited about. And now you've you got a, a, a total package there, right? So, so praise God for the diversity. And, and please don't look around and go, oh, but I just, I, I wish I had that one. Listen, I have wanted to play the guitar forever. I really have. I, I always want to play the guitar. I'm terrible at it. Terrible. I tried lessons once, and I kid you not, the, the, the teacher went over to my mom and said, I don't think he's very good at this. <laughs> and I'm like, I can hear you. <laughs> It left an indelible mark, no doubt, right? There's something in there from that. But it's not my gift. And probably if I could play the guitar, I'd want to just do it for everybody and be like, look at me playing the guitar, right? God's like, yeah, no, we're not, we're not doing that. So praise God for this. And, and, and let's, let's operate in our giftings and know that they're to be used that he in his perfect plan as he created you, as he knew you before he formed you in your mother's womb, as he foreordained those good works, as he said, oh, oh I'm choosing you and, and, and this is what I want to do in your life and these are the things that I want you to, to do for my glory. Do you think then maybe those things are really good because he said they are? And so when you operate in that gifting that you can go, Lord, thank you that you would use me. And so, And and, and here's the other thing. There is a benefit. Certainly, when we are operating in our gifting and calling, there is a peace that comes from that, no doubt. But it's not just for you, is it? It's for the body. So I'm going to ask you again something that I kind of mentioned earlier. Can God-given gifts be exercised for his glory and for the benefit of the body bearing much fruit for you if the body's not even together? I think that's a pretty tough one. We have to be together. We have to be together physically. We have to be together uh, spiritually. There needs to be unity. This is an organism, it's a body. It needs to be connected. Now, what about if we're not surrendered? If we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to? If we're allowing divisions to come in, what of the effectiveness of his body then? Look, Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. Paul writes here, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, until we all come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He he gives us right there, here's the purpose of your giftings. It's for all y'all, as they say in the South. It's a little forced still, even though it's been eight years. But look over here. Exalt, equip, engage. It's been, it's been there all along. Maybe some of you are like, check it out. This is Ephesians 4.12. No way! The equipping, that's what it's about. And so we come, exaltation, that's worship. We have a right relationship vertically with God. When that relationship is right and we've entered into worship and surrender happens, then we know exalt, boom, check, move on to the next step. Now we're equipping, we're recognizing, just as Paul said, look, you're gifted. God wants to use those gifts and he doesn't want to do it just for you. It's for everybody so that everyone can grow so that we can all then just sit here and make each other feel good. Right? No, so that we can engage, so that we can go out and be that unified body for the world to see, and they'll know something's different. Something's different. So Paul here, he progresses this message to say, Christians, church, this is what, as he he moves forward now, he says, this is what your behavior then should look like, So he's told us now, look, this is how it's supposed to function. And now he's saying, and this is what it should look like. Specifically, he starts more so within the church, but I don't think we can limit it there because as he then shifts outside the church through the last part of this chapter, we'll see that many of these things overlap. Moreover, we're not to be one thing here and another out there. There should be consistency. And so he begins in verse 9 through the rest of the chapter to say, here's what your behavior should look like. And he says, look how he starts. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. And Paul begins his instruction on Christian living with a call to love. And this is agape love. This is not phileo love. This is not storge love. This isn't the the brotherly love or the romantic love. He's saying this is unconditional love. This is the love demonstrated to you from the Father. Let love be without hypocrisy. And so we are called to love without hypocrisy, which basically means no fake love. None of this fake stuff. We don't want the imitation love. We want the real thing. And it's often easy for Christians to say that we love, especially if we are surrounded by other Christians who think alike and talk alike and dress alike. And Right? But even then, that love is often very surfacey because it happens in confined spaces you know, a few times a week if we're not entering into other opportunities, ladies' studies, men's studies, life groups, different venues where we can begin to open up and see each other and when we can go into people's homes and begin to, to really go deep. Christian, and so, and so we, we, need to, we need to evaluate this. We need to be willing to say, Lord, do I love with hypocrisy? Think about Think about the person this week who just really tested your nerves. If there was that person, you know, you're already there. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm thinking about it. The person who pushed your buttons. The person who let you down. What, what are the things? Listen, listen this, is, this is hard stuff sometimes. This stuff that makes us uncomfortable. What are the things sometimes you say under your breath about another person? <laughs> right? The times when you you know, hey, we're just gonna poke a little bit of fun, but in reality we deeply wounded a person and they just brushed it off with a laugh. And but hey, we're just joking around. Did you glorify God in that? Was that love without hypocrisy? What are you engaging in on social media? What do you repost? Does it scream, Jesus? What are you liking? Posting? Does it communicate love, agape love, unconditional love for all people? What do you say in your home when the door is closed and the blinds are shut and now you're safe to just talk the real way? What happens when you see a person wearing a mask and you're not? Or you're wearing a mask and the other person's not? What begins to go through your mind? What if I were to say, Biden, what happens? Trump, what happens? Pro-life, pro-choice. Black Lives Matter. What begins to come to your mind? Because then Paul goes from here and he says, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. And so we see what we are supposed to detest, evil. What is that evil? Oftentimes the very evil we detest, and we're encouraged in scripture to detest it, we allow that evil to be personified. We begin to see the very people uh, uh, in any one of those categories as evil. Evil. Yet the truth of Scripture that we know is that they are an individual made in the image of God. Maybe one of those individuals isn't walking with the Lord. Maybe they, maybe they in, in, in every way, shape, or form in their life, function as an antichrist. But maybe they're the very individual who God is going, man, my heart is broken, created for good works, that you would walk in them. And oh, if my church would be unified and would love, they would know. Because you see, what we're we're called to is really to hate the sin, not the sinner. And I know this is an easier uh, statement, an easier mantra to say sometimes than it is to, to live out, but we must commit ourselves to this if we want to love without hypocrisy the way that Jesus loved. He goes on to say, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. Giving preference to one another. That is esteeming others as better. That that is without qualification saying, I'm just going to treat this person as if they're better than me. I'm going to humble myself. But what I would say is that we have tended to, especially as of late, allow opinions to blind us to love without hypocrisy our opinions have polarized us we've convinced ourselves we can be one way to one person and another way to another because we're right because we have the answer because this is just this is just clearly wrong and we and then we have have refused to listen to engage to demonstrate kindness, simple kindness. And that's called sin. And what we've done in those situations, whether we realize it or not, is we've jumped right up off the altar that we formerly laid ourselves upon. We've kicked Jesus right off of the throne of our hearts and said, give me my seat back. Because I'm right. And I'm justified. And I know. And I have the answer. And all along he's saying, I'm just calling you to love people. And we need to be honest about this. Look, I realize that today I don't have the time here to, to try and change. And maybe it's not even necessary, I don't know. But to change all of our opinions on the multitude of different issues out there, nor do I think that that's even my job. That, that's for the Holy Spirit to do. That's a work of the Spirit through His Word that should shape our opinions and beliefs. That's called a a biblical worldview. But what I would at least challenge us to do today would be to put Jesus above all opinions. Put Jesus above those opinions. Because the fact of the matter is, the vast majority, the vast majority, not all, There are absolutely things that we can look at happening in our culture today and we can say unequivocally, no doubt about it, this is what the Bible says on this issue. This is right, this is wrong. But even in that, our approach is everything. It's everything. Having a conversation with a couple people yesterday, and we were talking a little bit about, well, well what when there's certain things that you just have a sense of, I've got to stand for truth here, and, and I've, I've got to fight for this issue. Well, I think our understanding of standing for truth and fighting for something has also been entirely fit into the mold of this world. When Jesus said, well, not Jesus, well, yes, Jesus, but in an Old Testament context, when God spoke, <laughs> that's where I was trying to go. When he, when, he, when he was calling Israel to fight, how often did he say, I want you to fight just like the other guys? Right? When, he, when David was trying to take the ark ba- back to the tabernacle, well, he screwed it up, and somebody died. And do you know why? Do you know why the way in which David moved the ark that day resulted in a man's death? Because he sought to move the ark the way that the world had transported it up to that point. He didn't pay attention to, here's how God said, you deal with this. He had to do it. He had to go back. He had to give it some time. He had to put the ark away. He was really frustrated. He was really upset. It was really one of those moments for David. of like, God, I was trying to do a good thing. And God had to give him some time to come back and say, you do things my way. Not the way of the world. Here, go march around this city seven times, blow your trumpets, go back home. Awesome battle plan. Seemed to work, didn't it? How does Jesus say to fight? Jesus told Pilate, did he not? We talked about this on a Wednesday night a few weeks ago. Jesus stated, if any of you have ever wondered sometimes, if you're like, man, I really wish the disciples would have done a little more uh, putting some hands on some people. Jesus specifically said, he goes, look, if this were my kingdom, we'd fight. But this isn't it. He says, my kingdom is another place. Therefore we're not going to fight. I'm going to lay my life down. He's not opposed to fighting in the way that we understand. There's going to be a big battle. There's a big battle coming. But he says we fight differently. So yes, fight. Yes, stand for truth. Do it by loving people. Do it by loving people. When somebody comes at you, and we're not going to make it. <laughs> Darn. <laughs> David, come on up. What a wonderful invitation for your worship leader, isn't it? (laughs) David, come on up. Verse 17. We'll come back. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. We must be pursuers of peace. Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And you know the wonderful thing about this, especially for you folks that are like all about justice, it's coming. Don't worry. The perfect and righteous judge will do exactly what he needs to do, what he intends to do, what he means to do. He will take care of it. If you feel there's an injustice, you just love people. You just love them. And you say, God, you take care of it. Because if we try to, we screw it up. We screw it up. We'll either be way more harsh or not even anywhere where we need to be. <laughs> God's the perfect judge. He can handle it. Guys, we've been overcome by evil too often these days. And I don't analyze that too much there. I, trust me, if you are a believer, you're part of his church. And he will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But I think there's been a lot of moments, especially as of late, where his church, where members of his body, have allowed the deceitful ways of the world to draw us in, the evil schemes of this present age to cloud our judgment and bring division into his church. Things that, 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 the path I was going down earlier, some things, yes, a little bit more clear, but we respond in love. We don't, we don't fight the way the world fights. And then other things that are even made their way into the body that we just need to go look. There's not a right answer to this. Other than what is the right answer? We'll get there in Romans chapter 14 and we deal with it a little bit in Corinthians as well that, that, that the answer is everybody has a conscience and, and everybody, every believer should be able to seek the Lord and to be able to go, look, I'm convicted on this issue. And, and because of that, then, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk in obedience to the Lord on this particular thing that he's shown me. But because it's not as clear in Scripture, that that's just for me. And I'm not going to try and put that on you. And I'm not going to expect you to be convicted about the same thing that I'm convicted about. This is just between me and the Lord. And so we need to be willing to go that path, too, to allow for individual conscience in the church again. That we don't become divided over senseless and stupid issues. And so when somebody comes at you or when somebody's saying, hey, you should do this or you should do that or, any, or you're feeling yourself going, okay, <laughs> it's welling up in me. We just need to be able to look at each other and go, man, I love you. Just say it and hug it out and move forward. Do not become, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We're a people called to love without hypocrisy, those within and without, to be unified so that the world would know. That's what's on the line. Friends, he bought this church with his body and his blood. He paid for it. Can we surrender to the desire of Jesus for his church? Here's what I'm going to ask you to do this morning. As you come forward for communion, of course, our communion table is open to all who are born-again believers, that you've surrendered your life to Christ. If that's not you, then make today that day. Get right now, as we sing, just give your life to Christ. Repent and trust. But as you come forward, I'm going to ask that as you come forward today to take of communion, that you come forward willing to say, as I hold the elements, the symbols of his body and blood, as I take of these things today, I'm going to recognize, Lord Jesus, I'm yours. And what you want in your church, I will surrender to. And so, Lord, help me to put aside my opinions. Help me to put aside the things, the foolish disputes, and to live for you that we could experience the unity that you desire. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for our time together here this morning. And Lord, I pray that by your spirit, Lord, you would continue to pierce our hearts and minds with your word. And these are difficult things, Lord, certainly for us to surrender to, because surrender, Lord, means a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of opinions, a change of behaviors, a change of action. Lord, to begin to look at people, maybe who we've long held animosity towards, To look at them differently, Lord. To see them as you see them. But Lord, that's what we want. We want, Lord, what you have for us. And the amazing thing about this is is as big as that is, as big and, and difficult as surrender can be, it's really just that first step because you take care of the rest. It's just our willingness to say, yes, Lord, that's what I want. Change me, Lord. And we can trust then your Spirit to do that work within us. That's the work I pray would happen here today. Lord, such unity would be experienced in this fellowship, Lord, and that we'd see what you can do, Lord, through all of that. So Lord, work in such a way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.